Geek Top 5 Quarantine Edition. Yay! It was time now. There was was all the time I needed. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And uh, did we want to start with a Go Team Geek Top 5, or is that already too deep a cut for what we're doing here today? Yeah, yeah, you make your finger a G, and I'll make mine a T and a 5. Yeah, there we see, go. Anyway, yeah, you can't see it because it's a podcast, but we're totally doing yeah, it, yeah. and it's rad. Oh, it's so cool. <laughs> All right, we've got another round of dueling lists this time around, but we also have a bit of a PSA because we're talking about another thing that uh, may be a little bit niche for geeks. Uh, today's episode of Geek Top 5 is about the Venture Brothers. Yes, a, uh amazing adult swim cartoon that's not like any other Adult Swim cartoon. Uh, that was a, a brand that started on Cartoon Network many years ago to to differentiate their more adult content from their uh, more kiddie fare. And a lot of their stuff was just sort of weird for the sake of being weird, like Aqua Teen Hunger Force or, what is it, Sea uh, Quest 2020? Is that what it was called? I don't even remember. Uh, and the Space Ghost Coast to Coast was the original one. Yeah, lots of lots of unique ideas. It's sort of the indie channel of cartoons meant for adults. Um, but this show found its way on there, and it is so. I mean, listen, it's gone through. It's, there's seven seasons of this show being released over something like twelve years, um, and it just has always flown under the radar. And it's so it's become one of those things that if you've never heard of it, you literally have never heard of it. If you have heard of it, you've watched it, and you adore. It. And it's one of those things where you find another person in the room. It's, oh, you know the Venture Brothers. And then there's 20 minutes of, oh, and then that one episode where this happened. Very exciting. So, Geek Top 5 <laughs> audience, uh, we have each brought a dueling list of our top five Venture Brothers characters. And are going to use that also as a vehicle to, to talk about the show. So I just want to ask if you remember this. Like we, it, the series started when we were in university. I don't remember how it came into our lives. Do you? No, I assumed you did it. I don't know. I have no memory of it. Ah, oh, that's super creepy. <laughs> it was just there one day. No, only the first two seasons were out when we first started watching it. Um, and I, you'd think it, it was in the pilot episode was 2003, but the series premiered in 2004. Uh, and they, it's been a very slow process because for a while it was still hand drawn, um, and a lot of care goes into piecing it together. But how do we describe what this show is about? Well, I, the way I always pitch it is if if you know who Johnny Quest is, it's like Johnny Quest grew up and became a failure and has two idiot sons of his own and they go on adventures yeah i mean and that's sort of the the elevator pitch it's yeah like, what if these you know the, the boy adventurer concept you know that we saw like everything from johnny quest to tom swift to the hardy boys like what if they grew up and you know were now like an incredibly dysfunctional adult based on that kind of wacky childhood but it's i mean failure maybe is a good thing to hit it on but it's also Maybe more to the point would be about... It's a show about living up to expectations. Yes. Like, every character in this show is not who they sh are supposed... To, like, they're not who they could have been, in a way. Like, it, from their perspective, is if they tried harder, or if they were smarter, or if they were better. 
And a lot of the show is about that, about how they're kind of pathetic compared to what they want to try and portray and what they want to be. But it also gets kind of touching in a way. They also sort of accept it. Um, it's also about friendship, too, and, like, finding friends where you can and and uh, just accepting the friends you have. There's there's a lot of great stuff in there about that, and, and especially male friendship. It's We should say it's a pretty man-centric show with a few really notable exceptions. Yeah, fair. And it's also important to point out, I mean, like what we're describing could be a drama. Like, this is still a world that takes place in a world of boy adventurers. So the characters in this show are superheroes and supervillains and secret spies and all this, but it's sort of what would have happened if that was happening in the 70s and now it's the 2000s. Like, like the supervillains have a union now. And there's union dues and rates and rules for how you do an arching, for when you're arching your nemesis. Like, it's that kind of comedy. Yeah. Uh, and they're, it, where they're taking those worlds, those, like, Saturday morning cartoon worlds, and they're like, okay, if that carried on... Like, the way what happened to the music industry, you know, music in our parents' generation was creative and interesting, but if you look at it now, it's been sort of corporatized. Wow. Imagine you sound if that, like such a grumpy old man. Oh, please. Are you really gonna <laughs> That's not helping. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, get off my lawn, Graham. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Is It's like where you know, all that the fun and wonder like put through like, you know, the 21st century ringer is I, what you get. I think uh, you would mention the animation process is part of the reason why there's been such long gaps between seasons, and that is definitely a big part of it. But I think the other part is that it's just really two guys that are the brains of the operation. They they do so much of the work on the show, from writing to directing to voice acting to creating music for it, all sorts of stuff. And and that it almost makes it when I say it, it makes me think like, oh well, it's probably very low quality then. But that's not the case. They have a very real animation team. It it is beautiful, and every season the animation got better and better and better. But I think it, the fact that it's just these two guys, the downside is it slows the process down because they have to do everything. But on the plus side, it keeps it a very consistent world. Like, the the writing is always really consistent with how the characters have been portrayed over the years and how they've evolved. And, and it, it's such a strength with the show. It feels like an auteur thing. It's not something where it's just people cranking it out like they just hire people off the street to write some episodes no it's these two guys doing everything that's a fair point um i mean let's let's not do them the disservice um, these two guys are so christopher mccullough who goes by the professional name jackson public uh and his buddy i don't actually oh and his buddy is doc hammer um, which is that is the, his the name that he uses although he was born eric hammer and these are the two guys uh behind it um, McCullough has a big, or Jackson Public, has a big history in comedy and cartoon writing. Um, he was big for the, he was working on The Tick. Right. So if you know The Tick kind of comedy, that's where you're getting that. And Doc Hammer is one of those sort of auteurs. He's all over the place. He's a musician. He's an actor. Um, he was married to another musician and actor for a while. Who's on the uh, show sometimes. Yeah, he was he was in a couple of, of gothic rock bands. He was in Requiem and White, which is one I've actually heard of. <laughs> there's like there's like these that 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 is a complicated dude. 
Um, and that shows up sometimes because every once in a while there are some deep music references in this show. Oh yeah, that I definitely had to go look up after. But yeah, it's worth noting that you say these two these two guys. It's worth mentioning their names because this is their brainchild and it is brilliant and they deserve the adoration that they've earned. And you are going to hear, I'm sure, as we get into our our top five character list, you are going to hear their names a lot because they do a lot of the voices. They do. So on that note, I mean, we keep trying to talk about what the show is. I think it'll help if we start talking about the characters. So why don't we get the lists a rolling? Uh, Graham, what is your number five? My number five is a much newer character compared to the rest of my list and uh, has many fewer appearances. It's Red Death. (laughs) That is also my number five. What? (laughs) (laughs) A fairly obscure one, too. But yeah, God, Red Death is great. Um, Here, you... It's it's your it's both our number five, but you started. So please, you do the lead in, and then I'll jump in excitedly at the beats. So he's he's one of the few characters, especially recurring characters, that isn't voiced by our our main heroes. There, he's voiced by Clancy Brown, uh, an amazing, uh, you know what what's the term for these guys? Like character actor, but it's also he's one of those guys where when you see him, you're like, oh, I know that guy. I've seen him before. His voice is in everything. He's probably best known as the Kurgan from the Highlander movie. Uh, he was also Tough in... Tough call. I mean, he was also the, the police like the police captain, like the jail captain in Shawshank Redemption, yeah. like live action. Yeah. And he's also the voice of Mr. Krabs in Spongebob, which is a oh, good. So anybody call. on the internet knows the... To me, uh, he's he would, also... I think he was the voice of Lex Luthor on the old Justice League and Superman cartoons. He was. Uh, he was the voice of, of Savage Opress in Star Wars The Clone Wars. Right. Um, a lot of roles that take advantage of his sort of really deep voice. Yeah. Deep, powerful resonance that I'm not doing justice <laughs> to here, but doing my best. He's also, I think, Gorilla Grodd in the DC TV series. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen that, but that's appropriate. So so he's this legendary villain in the series. We, we only really start hearing about him in the later seasons, but as... We get more into the history of the Guild of Calamitous Intent and the Council of Thirteen. His name starts coming up more and more, and when you finally meet him, he's this, like, suburban dad who's sitting on a park bench watching his kid play. The only thing that sets him apart is that he has a big red skull, (laughs) and he's really frightening to look at. And that's what it is, right? This character is the Venture Brothers universe equivalent of the Red Skull, of the Captain America villain. But like with like everything shone through the Venture Brothers lens, it's like, well, he's past his villain days now, and now he's sort of taking it easy, and him being this sort of kind and loving husband and father. Yeah, he's but there's so... still some of the still some of the old Red Death in there. Yeah, he's this uh, just seems like a great dad who adores his kid and really respects his wife and and wants to do the right thing by everyone, but he also really enjoys maiming people and and there there's a great moment and this is the the strength of having this voice actor do it when he first meets the the monarch in that scene he he has just this sort of calm normal regular voice but then he really turns on the red death energy and this rasp and rumble comes in and this just menace and and he's a scary looking character but even if he wasn't the voice alone is enough to to send chills down your spine and realize this guy is a lot scarier than than he looks like right now in the suburban setting. 
Yeah, do you think we could play a clip of that in here without getting sued? Do you, do yeah, you yeah, definitely. Which one is yours? Lila, that little ragamuffin in the rain boots. She won't take those off, you know. Not since I read her Paddington Bear. Now it's all rain boots and marmalade sandwiches for that one. She's uh, adorable. And she's got a lot of her old man. I can't help but see myself in her a little. She sure does. And she really looks like she does have that. Are you babysitting? You what? Oh, you know, I take care of a lot of things. Many things. You don't have a child, Mr. Monarch. So I figured. You, you know who I am? You've heard of the Mighty Monarch? Oh, of course. Big fan of your work. That marionette thing you made for Rusty Venture? <laughs> Wonderful. Wow, I'm, I'm flattered. I, Red Death knows my work. I mean, that's like... That's my business. But we're not at the office right now, you see. And that's the secret. You gotta separate your work from your life. It's a slippery slope once you start living as your character. The obsession starts. The darkness. A man can do terrible things when he's lost his way. Terrible things. So yeah, that's Red Death. Uh, so here, so, oh, let, so start with you before I take over. So why is he your number five? What puts him on the list above some other folks? He's just, I, I love that contrast with him. And, and he becomes an important character really quickly in those few episodes that he's in. Uh, he also immediately gets tied right back to the earliest mythology of the show. Even though he only shows up later, you hear how he was an important part in a very... I, I, it's so hard to talk about this without getting into spoilers, but a very pivotal event at the beginning. Yeah, in, a pivotal event, by the way, that was first mentioned in Season 1, Episode 2. And this introduction with this character happens in the last episode of Season 6. And that doesn't sound that long, but it's like 12 years between those two episodes. That And yeah. the fact that the story ties so well together that everything weaves. You can go, oh, that's what, like, that's what's ha that's how and it all comes together. Like, that's, they do that so well. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just love the contrast, the fact that he flips between those two coins so effortlessly. So that's why he makes the list for me. How about you? Uh, pretty much the same thing. Um, the the trick with Red Death is that unlike a lot of the characters in the show, Red Death has pretty much gotten everything that he wants out of life. And he has this conversation with the monarch when he has a sort of, you know, take it from me, from an old man who's, you know, like been where you were and managed to, you know, he, where he has that sort of like, yeah, the villain stuff was fun, but now I've learned how to live for myself. And that is a almost a refreshing change. We'll go into it more with some of the more characters we're talking about, but a lot of these characters are in bad places for whatever reason, whether, I mean, it's the obvious ones, whether it's financial or whether it's a collapsing marriage or just self-esteem issues. And having Red Death there to be sort of the straight man to that sort of comedy, I think played off really well and was frankly a little bit refreshing to have in the show. So in a way, it's not the best one to start the podcast with. No. Because he's kind of an exception. He's the, the exception rules. that proves the rule. Yeah. And the other characters react to him in that way. It's very clear. Like, like you know, they'll talk about other villains, no heroes, but it's, oh, Red Death. Oh, he's great. And, like, not just the villains, even the heroes. Right? Colonel Gathers is like, you know, <laughs> he says he's glad to hear he's still in the business. <laughs> Like, it's just everyone really respects him. And, it, and it's frankly, it was nice to, to see, like, as a character who actually makes it. But also, yeah, the performance of Clancy Brown 
yeah, when he's doing the, like, you know, I've got a special arching tonight. It's going to be murder. And then from the other room, it's, honey, do you want the brownie in with your lunch? And it's, oh, brownies, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the way he switches immediately back and forth from the supervillain to the retired dad is a delight. And a lot of that is owed to the actor rather than to the writing of the character, but it does, it does come out really well. Yeah, it it could have definitely flopped on and not landed without the right performance. <laughs> All right, should we move on? Yeah, what's your number four? Mine is Pete White. Ah, okay, not on my list. Okay, he is one of my favorites going back to his first appearances, and he's he's been there off and on since the beginning. He's a character voiced by Christopher McCullough, or uh, Jackson Public, one of the creators of the show. He's a uh, sort of lazy, sarcastic, albino character who's, who's obsessed with 80s music and just sort of skating by on other characters' coattails. Yeah, I think his biggest claim to fame in the show is that he once was a college radio station DJ. Yeah, and he hosted a uh, quiz boy game show but got caught rigging it. Right. <laughs> So he, I think what really sells him for me is, I mean, we, we're probably going to have to play a clip of this as well, but it's his voice, his the, the performance of his character from the get-go, just something about his voice has always made me laugh, no matter what he's doing. He's so great. Wait, 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 what are you, ah, oh, jeez, no, come on, not that old cliche. Cliche nothing, it is a classic. Inner Space is not a classic. It's like a great film. Then why don't they make it on DVD, huh, they fella? totally do it, whatever, I was talking about Fantastic Voyage anyway. He's just got this, this sort of lazy kind of California drawl to it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but he, he is just always sarcastic and always has an edge to him but it's like a bored edge where it's like he doesn't care if he's right or wrong but he always wants to be right does that make sense yeah i can see that it's i mean it, it, it's almost like i identify with him a little and not in a good way <laughs> like where like pete white is surrounded by from his perspective he's surrounded by people who are cooler than he is and he does what he can to fit in, but like there's there's a lot of jokes, especially in later seasons or when he's teamed up with Billy Quizboy, about how he's kind of the sidekick. And yeah. there's always the hey, come on, buddy, you know, I'm your partner. <laughs> and it's but no, everyone really just sees him as kind of the like I think Sergeant Hatred accuses him of being a starfucker. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. And he's I mean, I don't know that he, he is though. Like he's he is probably Doc's only real friend that is on the same level with him. You know, everyone else around Doc... So so Doc is what we call the grown-up Rusty Venture. He's the... Kind of the protagonist of the series. He's the, the grown-up Johnny Quest, who is the failure. And, and he's completely riding on the coattails of his father. But he has this this aura around him of being a boy genius, even though he's in his, you know, 40s or 50s or whatever. But he's still living off of that past glory. And Pete is the only character that he interacts with regularly who isn't a supervillain, who isn't employed by him, who aren't his children, or aren't in awe of him from his past. He's just like, they're, they're college buddies, and they are kind of on equal footing. And, and that's a nice thing to have, too. Just sort of like a regular, a, I mean, a somewhat regular 
character uh, to play off all of these crazy lunatics that the rest of the show is comprised of. Now, to be fair, we do see, like, Rusty Venture, we, like, the, his character revolves around the fact that he doesn't do anything well. I mean, may, like, like, what maybe he makes, he's sort of an acceptable, like, mad scientist mixologist. He's always making these horrible drinks out of, like, ketchup and bourbon, but that's all <laughs> he's really good for. But Pete White, we do see, like, he is a computer science guy. He's a programmer. He's a techie. He does sort of have that. So, it, it, so especially in later seasons, it sort of grounds him a bit. But you see the the evolution, whereas in, like before, he's it really is just about him kind of whining. Yeah, like, like is do we do we meet him before the episode with Mike Soriam's funeral, where they do all the flashbacks to them in college? I mean, he's in the first season. I, I know there's like some people track him back to an albino scientist in the original pilot, but I don't know that that was necessarily intended to be him. Uh, I think think he first shows up at the yard sale. Oh, okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, So, yeah, like, early on, like, he really doesn't have... What I'm leaning to is that early on, he doesn't really have that much depth. It takes a little bit for them to sort of focus in on that character. He's really more of a background to start. And I guess I'm just looking for, like, did you like, you know, early Pete White better or later Pete White better? I think, as with all the characters on the show, there's... The best ones sort of, well, maybe not the best ones, but oftentimes a character will show up and will seem somewhat two-dimensional or or somewhat limited, and then they keep going back to them, and they expand and expand and expand. Like, y- you can't imagine where Sergeant Hatred ends up from where he first appears. It's his first appearance. He's, he's just another villain, but he grows so much, and you would never guess that from how he is in his first appearance. And I think the same applies to Pete and some of these other characters, where... They first appear in one form, but as the show goes on, they get more and more depth. And it doesn't feel like a different character or they're adding stuff that wasn't there. It just, it's like you're getting a deeper glimpse of who they are. Yeah, okay, that's, I mean, you're absolutely right. That's the sort of problem I had going through some of this. So it's like, there isn't as clear a delineation between early Pete and late Pete. Yeah, and I I like all of it. Honestly, I think a lot of it just comes down to the voice, but his pathos and his relationship with Billy also help and that the depth of their friendship is is uh, kind of a fun thing too are do you I don't, I don't want to spoil stuff but do you have Billy on your list I don't okay well let's talk about Billy a little bit he's he's I he's got oh what's the term hydrocephalitis anyway I think so he's got no, a little body and a big head and he's a genius um, and but he just always looks kind of like a little boy. Now he looks kind of like an old man, little boy. And he Pete was running the quiz show that he rigged for Billy to win. And then when they were found out, they both got kicked out. And so Pete is kind of responsible for all this horrible stuff that has happened to Billy since then. But they're still buddies, and they still like he wants to fix. Pete's or uh, Billy's life, make Billy's life what it should be, and I, there's there's a lot of of pathos there. There's a lot of stuff to respect and and uh, enjoy from that relationship. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I, I love how much of this is just going over like as cool as a character can be because of the way they look or the way they sound. So much of it is the character development. It's what happened, you know, what has happened to them over the years. It, uh, we're, we're making a good commercial for the show. <laughs> I hope so. More people yeah. need to see this. Okay, sure. what's your number four? 
My number four um, is a another like Red Death, another rarely occurring character or recurring uh, is Doctor Henry Killinger. Ah, <laughs> is Doctor Henry Killinger? It just is is one joke that is performed so well that they reuse him a couple of times, and I love it so much. It's a great joke. Yeah. So to start is this. This is very clearly the conceit is that oh, it's Henry Kissinger, but he's a supervillain, uh, which I mean, you know, politically speaking, actually might be a little bit apt. Like there's a there's <laughs> a wide extreme of opinions on Kissinger's career, but the Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, sort of fancy, super fancy diplomat, is who the real life character is. Killinger is a a, a villain of. Like of mysterious levels of power, like in, in the Marvel Comics sense of like, what's his power level? Who can he beat? Killinger seems surprisingly powerful. He might be one of the most powerful villains we see in the show, but that's not his jam. He is sort of like a like a personal assistant, like you know, like life advisor for supervillains. Yeah, <laughs> which he can he can like see into people's souls and see their truth. But he uses it to try and like you know like like make you to better yourself. Like when we first meet him, it's he it's the monarch is in a really the monarch another supervillain character I'm sure we'll be talking about later uh, is in a really bad place. He's lost his number two. Things are falling apart, and Henry Killinger shows up to work pro bono as a consultant to sort of help get things in shape. And it turns out that a part of getting things in shape is getting the monarch back together with his girlfriend who left him and, like, building up, like, that part of their personality again. And then the later episode, he's, he starts to do the same thing to Dr. Venture, uh, who, the, you know, the big failure we've already discussed, but it starts building him up and uh, essentially tries to pitch, like, you could be a great supervillain with all this <laughs> pathos that you have. But he does it. He they really play up the the, the Kissinger accent. Uh, again, this is this is Jackson Public. This is Christopher Bacola. You cannot hope to reverse your regrettable financial straits without increasing production and workflow. To do this, you will need a highly skilled full-time staff, and here they are. How did they? Well, team building is a specialty of mine. Well, I can't. They don't look Mexican. How am I supposed to pay all these people? You won't. The state will. These men are part of a work furlough program. I call them the Vench Man. Do you get it? Venture. Vench Man. No, no, I get it. And the most ridiculous, like, when he's doing this stuff to boost rest, to boost Dr. Venture, he also becomes Uncle Henry to the kids, to <laughs> Hank and Dean, who are 16 years old. But it's like, like you know, he's, like, he's playing hide and seek with Hank. And there's a throwaway line later where Hank's like, oh, but Uncle Henry was going to take me rock climbing tomorrow. <laughs> like, it's just such a weird... It's one joke. The entire character is one joke, and that's why they can't use him too often. But I just, I try to picture the two of them sitting at a table and being like, okay, the diplomat supervillain, what would that be like? And coming up with this character is... I, I just love that conceit of taking this real like this real life political figure and cartoonizing him and have it turn out so well is a joy. And so and and also something that the creators of the show do really well is the eighties era supervillain names. Yes. Like right? And taking Kissinger and making it Henry Killinger, which it's like it's terrible. 
but also kind of funny. Like, it kind of works. Like, it has the exact right tone for the show where it's not a real super villain, but you get the idea. You get what it's going for. And I just, that kind of humor, that, 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 those clever points really win points with me. They, he's one of those characters that, that the show does have a lot of them where they'll show up for a few episodes in a row or a few episodes close together and they'll have a big impact and then they just kind of fade away and there's a lot of examples of that on the show and and it's it's just sort of neat to watch and see like different eras of the show when when Baron Underbite was a major character and now he isn't and when Dr. Killinger was a major character and now he just sort of isn't it's it's kind of neat to watch the progressions and the waves of these characters coming and going and also yeah, waves yeah just like the waves are important. Like Killinger comes and goes. Like he shows up when he shows up with Phantom Limb in the Revenge Society. Is it, is it the end of season five? I think where there's the dramatic reveal that Phantom Limb has gotten all these sort of you know defeated villains together, and so already it's like a oh look what's happening here, and then Killinger just walks in from the kitchen. It's who wants popcorn? <laughs> <laughs> oh god, it's him! Like that, being able to do that with these characters is, is really something special because you couldn't do it if nobody cared about the character, right? right. So you had to make an impact, um, but at the same time, you can't just introduce eleven billion A level characters. You have to find that perfect gray area of a recurring character, um, and Killinger is one of the best examples of that, I think. And they they have the other thing I wanted to say about Killinger or or around Killinger is they have so many amazing character names and I, I don't know how they do it and they they have these great character ideas that they just kind of toss out there for one joke and I'm like that is a brilliant name like there's an angry daredevil parody who's called Blind Rage, and he's just, like, an angry blind guy. And and he's just, like, a throwaway character. He's barely in the show. They've got so many great ones. Vendata, who's a, an android who is likes vengeance, I guess. Uh, Phantom Limb is a great name for a character. I, I just... There's so many. You could I could just sit here reading off a page of names, and they're all great and could be major characters in their own right. And some of them probably will turn out to be later on, and some of them just appear for one scene, and then they're gone. Yeah, there's... A great example of that, I think, is Harangatang, who's <laughs> essentially an angry Irish guy, but he's really hairy, so kind of like a monkey. <laughs> and that's... So that's already good, but then they go to talk to his his widow later, and it's this like abusive Irish lady, and she's old battleaxe. <laughs> And of course, she has an actual battle axe, but also like the old, like the puns in the in the villain and hero names are really the Captain America parody, who stars and garters, and he's pretty much Captain America, but he's actually wearing garters. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just genius level stuff for some of these characters. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're we're wandering. Let's let's get back on on tack here. This is going to be a long <laughs> podcast. Uh, what's your what's your number what's your number three? Okay, I I am worried this one might be a controversial one because it's comparatively low. Uh, mine is Doctor Girlfriend. Oh, that that is low. Uh, but I'll tell you, I mean, I I didn't put her on my list because I've sort of combined her with the Monarch. Um, who is showing up later on my list. But we can do this here. Okay. Uh, cause, I, cause the, yeah, because this one takes a while. <laughs> I I can understand why you would combine them. They are very... They're, they're a wonderful couple. Like, they're the, the most um, 
together. His most successful relationship on yeah. the show. Yeah, far and away, and they're great together. But I, I do like the fact that even though they are a pair, a lot of times on uh, in fiction, the the wife character is sort of just attached to the husband character and does stuff with him, right? But they have two very, especially by the end of season seven, they have two very different lives. They're still very much together and still a partnership, but she has done her own thing and and she's great on her own. She's great with him too. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, put it this way, it threw me for a second when you said Dr. Girlfriend because she gets married at the end of season two and since then she's been Dr. Mrs. The Monarch. Right. Uh, and like, It took me a second to rewind and be like, wait, who is that? Because she, like, that's sort of been her identity, the way that she's grown. It's true, and it, she's been Dr. Mrs. The Monarch for so much longer, but I don't know, there's something iconic. When, when you, or she is the biggest standout, I think, from the early seasons, just... Because she looks like Jackie O, the wife of of JFK, but she oh, has dress her up in the same outfit. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, don't, they, I don't know if they ever mention why, but uh, that's a good question. Like like later on, they get very good about explaining the motif and why everyone is the way they are in these the naming conventions. But that one is a little odd. But she's great, and she's she's voiced by uh, Doc Hammer, and she has this deep, raspy smoker's voice that's very much a man voice coming out of this, like, beautiful Jackie O body. It's it's a hilarious contrast, and that made her stick out from everyone else. Well, look who's still here. Waiting for the good doctor, I assume. Nope, I don't have time for your garbage tonight. I just got stood up, and I am so tired of him making a fool out of me. I am going to go look for the Blue Morpho. I will find him, and I will kill him myself. And that was supposed to be really dramatic, and I just blew it. What button do I push here? Is it the star, the L, the one? But then her character growth is amazing, too. She starts off as his, as the monarch's second, his, his girlfriend, and she's like the competent one who kind of makes things work around his screeching rage. But as time goes on, she has this whole background that you find out later about working with different villains and, and being her own supervillain in her own right. And then eventually rises to sort of be the leader of the whole villain community. It's, it's a hell of an arc. And it's still yeah. going. Which she, she and arguably as much as Doctor Venture is a protagonist, she has become a protagonist of the show as well. The last few seasons, she has a lot of airtime. A lot of the stuff, a lot of the plot is driven by her decisions and what she's trying to do. The whole hunt for the blue morpho right. is essentially like we see both sides of it, but the side of it from the like the regular characters is told from her point of view, um, and they. I agree with you. Like it does start off where like she's the competent one behind the scenes who's making the monarch work, but they really do work out a like a, a like a good they work out as a good team. Like she's got a lot of the sciency stuff to it, and she can kick ass when need be. But the monarch is the one who sort of does the like the performance art of being a supervillain, the way it's treated in this show. Yes, yes, he is very engaged with his identity as the monarch, as the monarch butterfly. But we will get into him later. Yeah, but she like but that plays off of it for her. Like we we see it established as part of her character, as part of the story that she doesn't really work on her own. Like being her own supervillain, it's not even what she really wants. Uh, but the partnership gives her so much agency, and when the two of them together are at their best, that's when I think she really shines. 
Um, so it's interesting, like the the stuff you describe about Doctor Girlfriend, where it's like, oh, it's funny because of her voice, but so much character growth into her becoming her own. We see what you know, what her values are, what she's good at, what she's trying for, even like getting over the damn murderous moppets. <laughs> yeah, and, and the the series could have just leaned on the man voice thing, but honestly, as the show goes on, you sort of stop noticing it, and it's just like, that's just her character, and it's no longer a joke, that's just who she is, and you accept her for for that, and, and uh, but the reason I have her as a separate character is because she does have these interesting arcs on, on her own, and, and she is still very supportive of the monarch, but she's definitely her own identity. And, and I think that's important because there's there's uh, this trope going back to, you know, sitcoms in the 90s and even earlier of, like, the the sort of loser husband who's the butt of all the jokes and the exasperated wife who's ultra-competent and super smart and has to put up with this idiot. And that's not what this is. And it very easily could have been. She genuinely adores him and but also respects him. And, and it's... And he isn't intimidated by her, even though he has every right to be, because she's so much better than him. They are, really do treat each other as equals, and it's it's a great pairing. So, so yeah, I guess that's that. Well, let's let's hear who your number three is. My number three, another one that maybe you could expect would be higher, but my number three is Brock Samson. Didn't make my list. Swedish murder machine, slayer of men, slayer of henchmen. I love Brock Samson. Uh, Brock is a... So, in terms of, like, the, the the setting, like, all these characters from the, like, the Johnny Quest era shows, there was always, like, the bodyguard, you know, the tough guy who protects the scientist and is, like, an uncle to the boy adventurer. That's who Brock is in so, this case. Yeah, on Johnny Quest, the, the sort of uh, template for this would be Race Bannon. Yeah. Who has a cameo in, yeah. in the show in the first or second season. Um, but yeah, Brock is a character where he took all of this 100% seriously when no one else did. Um, he is a, so he's a, a he's a, like a, he's sort of a James Bond figure. Like he's in the secret spy agency that no one knows even really exists. Um, who is super well military trained and like, and just now he's stuck with Dr. Venture. Right, like who isn't anything, and like he he sort of feels like his talents are wasted, um, and then other like you know, and he starts to learn to adapt to this world, and it's like like everything is boring to him, and everything is a waste of his time, except for the odd occurrence where he has to fight a Bigfoot or something, and then he's super excited, and his enthusiasm for it is infectious. So. So the reasons Brock is on my list is first is because they use him a couple of times to do really fun sort of spy secret agent stuff. They that he go he has to go in uh, Assassinani nine one one I think it's season two where he has to go on a mission that's essentially a comedic retelling of Apocalypse Now, <laughs> um, but full of spy stuff tropes like you know he like he gets his briefing while he's driving in a car. That drives off a pier and falls to the bottom of the lake, where he gets into a submarine, where he gets launched out of a torpedo, like that, that, that kind of stuff. Um, so you can do that, and you get a good way to play with that. But then also having him as sort of being like kind of the soft-hearted uncle to this family of losers and rejects, and like you know, over the course of the show, he warms up to the boys and he teaches Hank how to play bass guitar and tries to teach Dean how to throw a punch and it never really works out. 
the frustration of having like he grew up in a world where like super secret tough military spy guys were the heroes of the universe and now it's all bureaucratic bullshit the way he reacts to it where he he just he has to adapt to this nonsense world and then every once in a while something crazy happens is a delight Testing, testing, testing. Hello, Hello, idiots. Ladies, Ladies and, gentlemen, and gentlemen, thank you for accepting this suicide mission. Your target, a one Brock Samson, has been really bored lately and will enjoy the shit out of this. Each one of you fine soldiers will be sacrificed for his amusement. Your unavoidable deaths will become the stuff of legend. Every new recruit will hear the story of the time a guild blackout team got locked in the Behind seven-inch bars of steel doors, and one killed one by one in glorious service to this dumbass killed you, Joy. Good luck out there, and thank you for your service. Now, he didn't make my list, and I do love the character. He's great. But he is so hyper-competent that he's... He's not boring, but he's one note. Like, he's... There's of all the characters, he is fairly static from from episode one to the to episode eighty one. He's always just this like hyper competent murder machine who who's the only one who seems to see through the ridiculousness of the world. A- even though he gets caught up in it sometimes, like in his love affair with Molotov Cocktees. Another great pun name. Ah, phenomenal pun name. And a great character too. But yeah, I, I do really like Brock. And the episodes where he gets to really cut loose are a lot of fun to watch and they're beautifully animated. But he's a little dry. But you need that. You need sort of a straight man in this world. But he's he doesn't he would be, you know, my number six maybe on the list. Like he's he's great. He just doesn't quite have the same range as some of these other characters. I can agree with you to the point where, like, there isn't a lot of character development. He, like, he, he grow like, he starts off not caring about the family, and then he does by the end of the second season, and then not much really changes with who he is, but he's involved in a lot of great stories. Like, the whole thing, like, he ends up quitting the OSI because they, he thought they were trying to kill him, and then he ends up with Sphinx, and the... Like, like the things that develop, like, like his stories help drive the mythology of the show in a really fun way. Yes. Uh, and like a lot of that just would not work because like the gag with a lot of these characters, like they do this gag with, with Billy Quizboy and Pete White a lot is they'll be tr- driving a mythology thing. It'll almost be like a story from a serious cartoon, but then it derails when Billy and Pete just start yelling at each other instead of paying attention to the villain or whatever it is. Like, yeah. Brock is the one who can drive that forward. He's also got a lot of interesting characters that wouldn't be able to exist in the show without him, like Colonel Hunter Gathers and uh, Shore Leave. They're, they're great additional characters, and but they're, they're, they're even more outrageous than, than the usual characters on the show, and they can only exist because... Uh, Brock is there anchoring them. Because Brock can ground them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the, he's sort of the the vault, the, like the, the he's sort of the pole in the ground that the ball is tethered to. So did uh, you? No, I, 
say who the voice actor was for uh, for Mr. Sampson? Oh yeah, Brack. Yeah, Brock is voiced by Patrick Warburton. He's one of the few that isn't done by the by the show's creators, and you probably recognize him as the voice of Joe from Family Guy. And, you know, Putty from Seinfeld, Elaine's long-suffering boyfriend. Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. But yeah, he's also a voice. He does a lot of voice acting. He's he's headlined a few different sitcoms, and I think that's why there have been a couple of seasons where he has faded to the background a little bit, just because he wasn't as available for voice recording. And while it sucked having seasons where Brock wasn't as major a player it did allow other characters to step up and have more important roles. And, and I think that was really good for the show too. Yeah. It, yeah, it were, They use him pretty much a hundred percent perfectly where sometimes they dial him back. And I literally like having him roll his eyes and walk out of a room and just let this nonsense happen. Uh, and then other times just to have, I, I mean, something we haven't touched on as much, but there's also some of the, some of the violence in the show, some of the action, like uh, whenever there's action in this show, like good, like interesting stuff to watch, it's him doing it. Um, also something we haven't touched on, I just want to slide in before we move on, is he is a, like for, they never, I guess they haven't gone into why, it's just part of his character, we've learned to accept it, where he like, he basically is, like, he's living like it's 1971, like yeah. he he drives he like he listens to Zeppelin and he wears a mullet and he drives a Dodge Charger and he, like listens to a cassette deck and he's got a curly blonde mullet and it's like you wouldn't think anyone who had hair like that would be the badass character but he really is and and it it, it the hair doesn't seem to be a problem just for whatever and and the character in season six makes a comment on it. He's like, "What did they like? They they like you in 1969? You got you've trapped in an iceberg and they just thawed you out? Like what's what's going on here?" <laughs> and, it's, and they don't really go into it. It's just who he is. Yeah, like, and he doesn't bad. it doesn't ever phase him. Like he doesn't care what anyone thinks of him. Anyway, another weird thing about the character, but it's delightful. Anyway, let's keep on keep on moving. What's your number two? Well, we already know my number two is on your list, so let's see uh, if we'll be talking about him yet. But mine is uh, the monarch, the mighty monarch. Uh, the monarch is on my list, but not your number two. Not my number two. All right. Well, what is your number two? Like that sort of gives it away, I guess. But uh, <laughs> no, my number two is the Phantom Limb. Oh, okay. Didn't make my list. Really. <laughs> I love it. I love it. this is my favorite part of these dueling lists surprising each other. Yeah, he Phantom was Lin never in is like one of the like key characters of the show. He is, but oh, he's God. he never he was never really in contention for me uh, for my list. Good lord. Okay, jeez. So it's up to me. <laughs> it's up to you. So Phantom Limb, so the pun in the name is this so he's a supervillain and his his arms and legs are invisible. Um, and we actually find out a little bit later. It looks like they're prosthetics as well. But he, so he's, so he's a torso and head um, with you know, with these invisible arms and legs. And when he grabs you with these arms, it's sort of like it's it's unclear if it's electrocution or what's happening. But he can kill you that way. So just so because uh, the pun is is a little. Uh... A bit of a deep cut there. Phantom limb is this experience you have if you lose a limb. Sometimes it feels like it's still there, and so it, he's a literal representation of that. But also, like the limbs are, yeah, exactly. It, it works on a lot of levels, yeah. Right? And that's what's so great about this character in a world where all these characters are just sort of half-assing it. Phantom limb is the one who is so close. Like, he's so close to being, like, a real genuine supervillain, and he just doesn't quite make it. 
Uh, and it annoys everyone around him because he's trying to take this really seriously. He's trying to come off as this like suave debonair sort of Bond villain type supervillain. He's he's always got these like he's always communicating in metaphors that aren't quite on. Should we fire on them, sir? No. Let the rats desert the ship. It's the big fish rats we're after. <laughs> and everyone's like, it's like, like close, you know? It's like like <laughs> nine out of ten, like almost a really cool dramatic thing to say, but not quite. <laughs> And it's, so it's almost like he's a reverse Brock, because he is really, really good at this stuff. Like, he could almost make it as a supervillain, but nobody else gives a crap the way he does, right? It just And he wants it so bad. He wants to be that refined cultural character uh, with the Persian rugs and the fine cheeses. He's, and he comes off as so pretentious. But he just, he doesn't quite make it. Like, he's, and that comedy like i mean the, like we'll have to talk about it again with the monarch cuz it you know, it drives the monarch nuts he hates everything about this guy and that that behavioral attitude is part of it but having that be on the show and that's just describing the character like also like you were talking about with doctor girlfriend is he goes through so much in the story right he starts off as one of the supreme ranked villains in this, like, in this villainous union, the Guild of Calamitous Intent. And the climax of season two is his big coup to try and take it over all for himself. And he blows it. And then he's, a, like, he's living underground, and he's a renegade, and then he starts like rebuilding his career. And there's a whole... Like, in a whole it, just, he's always there. And he's always sort of setting himself up as a measure of what like, other people should try to be. And they all think he's kind of a dork. Essentially, is that like I feel like I'm babbling a little bit? Does that sort of sum it up well? It does. I think one of the things that holds him back for me is he is kind of irredeemable. Like I don't find that there's anything about him that is likable in a way that so many of the other characters on the show are. Even the villains, they have something about them that makes you uh, respect them or or at least identify with them on some level, you know, or empathize with them. And I find him just so evil I guess and obnoxious that I just don't I don't find him likable in any way I mean yeah but I don't know that I'm supposed to like him but I like how unlikable he is does that make sense like I like yeah. that like how obnoxious that character is like whenever he shows up like oh here we go <laughs> like it's I I just and I I do I respect that and I think he there, there's some great episodes with him but usually when he's the bad guy I just want more monarch you know but we'll get to that later, I think. We will. But God, just the, like, like the, when when he's disappointed in folks, he, he, he sets up a whole thing where he's going to, he has assassins coming to kill the Venture family and he runs into Hank and Dean and he says into the radio, it's something like, like, like you know, daddy has spotted, like, like, like hold off on, on the kids. Like daddy has spotted the children and he's going to put them to bed himself. And then there's a pause and then, yes, yes, I'm going to kill them. Like, I'm right here. I'll, I'll do it. That's, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, too, too clever for his own good. Yeah, but he's still not getting it quite. I just, that, like, I want to say it's my favorite joke, but that is so limiting it to, to one joke, and it's not. The, the constant bumping up of his character, trying to take all this seriously, but bumping it into reality. 
I think in a way I identify it with a little, in, not in the supervillain sense, I wish, <laughs> but, but in the sense that like at some point when like things are so complicated and things are so, it's just like, oh, come on. None of you really give a shit about this, right? Like, I, I, I've had this reaction in, a, you know, in, in conference rooms. And it's just, I, I don't want to give out any details because I don't <laughs> want people to know where I work. But every once in a while, it's just like, like, we've been talking about this for an hour. Really? Does anybody in this room really care about this much? Like, like the, that's the attitude the characters sort of have to him. Like, he's taking it way too seriously. And I enjoy his... It's not schadenfreude. Like, I'm not enjoying his suffering because of it, but I enjoy him constantly hitting that wall. Yeah. Uh, he's also voiced by, I believe, James Urbaniak, who's the voice of Dr. Venture himself, one of the, the oh, few... Oh, yeah, which is unbelievable because the voices are completely different. Yeah, well, yes. And it's very impressive, but... but or Baniac, because I guess he's the main character, he doesn't do many of the side characters like like some of the rest of the cast, but he, that is a really good one. Okay, my number one is one of the titular Venture brothers themselves, himself, Hank Venture. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so let me give uh, some background. Like, we might have, the show is called The Venture Brothers, and we barely talk about them. And, and that's one of the interesting things about the show is, is it, it's, in a lot of ways, and, and in certain seasons, the Venture Brothers become very minor supporting characters. Lately, they've gotten the limelight again in the more recent seasons. But Hank is just this unstoppable force of positivity through everything. He's he's really dumb, but that never stops him. He just always has these ambitions and these dreams, and, and reality is never going to stop him from trying to reach for those dreams. So, uh, what'd you put down? <clears throat> Number one, Drifter. Right, okay, that's not really a career, Hank. It's like the opposite of a career. Ah, but you don't need to go to college to be one, right? Plus, you get paid to just walk around all day reading sexy letters. Like the guy in Red Shoe Diaries. He wasn't a drifter. That guy's getting all his mail. That implies a fix the dress. Keep fine. Then, like, David the Hulk Banner. Well, David Banner's real name is actually Dr. David Bruce Banner. So he's a scientist. No, then I don't want to be that. Well, what's your second choice? Owner and operator of a chimp Eden. Okay. Well, that's barely saner. But for that, we're talking three, four years of veterinary school minimum. And that's on top of a bachelor's degree. Oh, scratch that one, too. Man, wait a room chimpy. Okay, you, uh, made a mistake here. You wrote Batman twice. Yeah, that's intentional. Number three is Golden Age Batman, and number four is Post-Crisis Batman. They're like two completely different Batman. <sighs> okay, so that just leaves... Secutor? Are you trying to spell executive? Duh! Secutor is a kind of gladiator. They've got the coolest helmets, and they get to beat up on those Gaylord gladiators with the nets and the tridents. Reciarius, my favorite gladiator. And there's something I really like I mean, about that. Like, there's definitely an element of ADHD in there <laughs> as well, I think. Like, That's fine, but there's there's just... He's he's a really great character. And, and I, I don't know, before... I started researching for this. I don't know that he would have ended up my number one. But what really sealed the deal for me was the fact that he is the star player in two of my favorite episodes of the series. Uh, the first one is season four is Everybody Comes to Hank's. Where Oh, the noir episode. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a phenomenal episode. <laughs> he starts, he, he's 
uh, Doc goes away and and wants Hank to have a job when he gets back. When he comes back, Hank has turned part of the Venture compound into a like shopping mall, and he's just selling it to the guests who come by, like just their friends, the neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> Hank Co. Yeah, and one of the things, kind of like uh, Honest Ed's, is that it, it it does everything. That his little store, they there's like a coffee shop and a place where you can get documents notarized, and also. A private detective. Of course. And so he puts on... <laughs> he, and he's running everything. And so he puts on this this hat, like a, you know, 50s film noir character, and uh, the the screen turns black and white, and he starts talking in these cliches, and it's amazing. And it's like, it's it's barely parody. It, it plays it so straight over this stupid mystery he has to solve. It's so funny and so well done. I love every second of it. And then the other one is the the most recent season finale, actually season seven's Safrax Protocol. There's there's an A, B, and a C story in this one, and they all feature different characters. But Hank's story in it is he is in a coma and he's having this this amazing coma dream and he's sharing it with another character from the show the action man who's also having sort of a coma dream and they mix and hank's fantasy is all empire strikes back and he's dressed like lando and the action man's fantasy is barbarella and he's dressed like uh mark hand the catch man and so it becomes this fantasy that mixes barbarella and empire strikes back and it's like the episode was made for me Personally. I was gonna say I think this has more to do with you than it has to do with Hank Venture, <laughs> but but as as I recall, that's how I got you to buy season seven on iTunes. Is I described <laughs> this to you. <laughs> it's such a good bit, and like the, the whole season's great too. But that episode and that moment and like the the deep cut references they make to this 1969 Jane Fonda movie that I happen to just I have this this bone deep. Uh, love for. Let's go with fascination. Fascination, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's this real weird curiosity of the, you know, acid-fueled end of the 60s era, and to have that be on a cartoon from 2018, and have it also mixed with Empire Strikes Back, arguably the best Star Wars movie, it's, it's so good. It's such a perfect mixture that I never would have ever imagined possible. Ah, so good. <laughs> that is a little specific. Um, <laughs> but that's but what I, this I, is. Like, this is our personal yeah, list fair. of favorite characters. Uh, I do like Hank a lot, but I feel like, I mean, the boys definitely take a while to develop. They're 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 almost like B characters in their own show. Not so much in terms of screen time, but that there's nothing interesting about them for a few seasons. Which is part of the story. Like, they're, they're still the boys in the boy adventurer world, but then they finally start to grow up and get interesting around season three or four. Um, so I sort of hold those early seasons against them a little. Like, they're still funny, but they're very one note. They are, but I, especially rewatching it now, I feel like you, you get so much of the characters, even as they grow, they still, you can see the seeds of their growth in them in those early episodes. Yeah, it's important to know who they were to understand who they are. That's um, so but deep, that, man. But that does take away. But 
but but you're right. There's some of the stuff about like every once in a while they'll just have like a throwaway where there's something weird. Like they mentioned that like Hank isn't allowed to drink coffee because it like it, he overreacts to it. And there's a line like you know the last time you drank coffee like you you you, you, were, you hid Murphy beds all over the house. <laughs> and then later in another episode, I think during a dramatic chase, somebody is like he's running from a villain or a monster or something and turns a corner and opens a door and a Murphy bed falls on him. <laughs> Yeah, like it's just these weird little Hank things that just that just get thrown off. Like those are some of my favorite things about him. Not so much his A plots though. Like, like he, a lot of the a lot of his story lately is the relationship between him and Dermot Fictal, which yeah. is fine, but it's not my favorite part of the show. Like the, the couple of seasons where he has a band, sort of a band, <laughs> Shallow Gravy. Shallow, is, great is, band name. Great band name, but it's it's not my favorite arcs compared to other stuff. I will agree with that, but in the most recent season, his his arc had to do with his girlfriend Serena, and I love that. the The character's great, and their interactions are great. Really enjoyed that whole storyline. Yeah, and, no, you're right. Yeah, they they and he's like, season six, season seven. Hank is so much stronger than season one, season two. Hank. Um, I still, I don't know. I, I wouldn't put it on my on my list. I just, I feel like it doesn't have the same meat on the bones that some of the other characters do. Like, I, I do buy, I do hear your arguments. I do accept them, but I wouldn't put them above, like Brock Samson, who I, has. And I, I know you seem to think the exact opposite. <laughs> and, and like I said, like I don't know that I necessarily would have thought that before working on this list but it was really nailing down the fact that my two favorite episodes the two episodes that stand out in my memory above all others are very hank focused and, and there's other good stuff like saffrax protocol is a great episode on a lot of levels there's a great brock storyline in there and there's a great monarch storyline in there but the hank stuff really hit home for me i think that's what it comes down to like there's so many traits of hanks that i identify with like you know he loves being Batman, and he's, you know, there are certain ways where I would like to be more like Hank, just his unbridled enthusiasm and his inability to be put off of of his dreams. No, that's that's deep, man. That's That's the show. It's it's so much deeper than it seems at first viewing. All right, well then, on that note, we move on. I think there's only one more character to talk about, my number one and your number two. Yep. Uh, where we we got to talk about the monarch, who almost from season one, in a way the show could be like if instead of calling it the Venture Brothers, you called it the Monarch. I think it would be appropriate, like yeah. the especially in later seasons, the oh, A yeah. plots are about the Monarch, but he's always had a, a big role. Yeah, I, I sort of rewatching it, I, I got the sense that. He was going to be one villain amongst many, like Baron Underbite and, uh, what is his name, Brisby. Uh, but he very quickly steals so much of the limelight, so much of the spotlight. And it's not just him, there's also Dr. Girlfriend and Henchman 21 and 24. And I have to admit, I am very surprised 24 didn't end up on either of our lists, but we can talk about that after we give the monarch I, his I, due. I feel like you mean 21? Right, right, yes, 21, sorry. Okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the whole Monarch crew, and this is like this is what I was talking about when you were talking about Doctor Girlfriend, or I didn't put her on my list because the Monarch I feel like is the anchor, of, like of the Monarch crew of the, of the group of characters who are sort of in his orbit. 
but he's delightful. So, so for for the audience, so the monarch, so is a supervillain, and the pun name is that his whole thing it revolves around like he's royalty, like he's in charge, but he's also like the monarch butterfly. Like his whole, he has a butterfly themed suit, and all of his henchmen wear like big orange wings, and his hideout is a giant flying cocoon. That's the that's the villain thing he's decided to go with. He has a butterfly-oriented backstory. It's it's exactly on tone for the Venture Brothers, and like, not doesn't quite work for a serious supervillain story, but for something being funny, it's great. Um, he's got a he's he's voiced by Jackson Public again by Christopher McCullough, uh, who doing a Skeletor impression essentially. Um, if any of you listening are old enough to remember He Man and that, I'm not going to do the impression because it will damage my microphone. <laughs> but. That really high-pitched whine. Are you out of your f***ing minds? They were were gonna be our gift to you guys. On this, your wedding day. You dicks! I promised her! I made a pinky swear! A sacred pinky swear! Dr. Fiance is going to fall! How does he do that? I can hear that in my eyes! Will you shut up and listen to your leader? Like, that, that Skeletor and Cobra Commander both had, I guess. There's just something about that era. That's how they thought villains. <laughs> Starscream 2, kind of? Yeah, Starscream 2. It's probably the same actors, come to think of it. Um, but the Monarch, his whole thing is he wants to arch Dr. Venture. He hates Dr. Venture. His entire life revolves around embracing this hatred in him for Dr. Venture. And he's Dr. Venture's arch nemesis, and that's everything about it. But to do that, they've gone into, like, his character has been the focus of the show for so long. Like, early on, like, we we meet Dr. Girlfriend, who's sort of his backup character, but she leaves him after a big fight, and then uh, the whole season about his depression and, like, getting over it, then they get back together, and they get married, and he starts to, like, climb the chain of supervillain, and then he loses everything and has to start from the bottom again, and then, like, there's this, all this drama about his life and not all of it is even about the supervillain stuff it's just about him living every day and adapting to the the world around him but at the same time it's this guy in a butterfly suit with his creechy voice (laughs) yeah yeah but he's he's definitely had these amazing story arcs and in our recent one this was a brilliant touch too. He he. It's revealed that his father was a a. He's a Green Hornet parody, and Green Hornet's whole shtick was that he was a superhero who pretended to be a villain so that he could get in and figure out all the villain's secrets. And and but the cops all thought he was a villain too, and so his. So we find out that the Monarch's father is the Blue Morpho which is the name of another different type of butterfly. And this all comes out so much later. It's just like the the seeding of these jokes and these references and these connections is so well done. Ugh, I really, really appreciate these the, then, the things they do. But but then even that, like, that's just the supervillain stuff. There's all the other stuff about him just, like, like, for a while, like, he and Henchman 21 are really into Game of Thrones. <laughs> And there's a lot of that kind of thing. Like he's in a fight with Doctor like Doctor Girlfriend isn't backing him up on something and it's and he's all like, You're supposed to be my Khaleesi <laughs> Like it 
like, like he has a life and a character, and but it's tor- told through this weird lens. And especially later on, when he loses like his big army and he gets closer to twenty one, because he's one of the few henchmen left, where he has a few heart to hearts about what it's like living like as a as a villain. Like this is a world where his job is to hate professionally. And a lot of it revolves around, like, well, he doesn't want, he's not really into the job of it. Like, they want him to hate other people, but he just, he wants to hate Dr. Venture. That's what he wants to do with his life. And it's hard for him to try and do what needs to do to get there, like, to have these other protagonists, and then, like, what, like, what does it mean about who he is? And it's, it's a really in-deep evaluation of a character based on this completely insane concept (laughs) that, Fortunately, the the huge in-depth meat on the story of the show is big enough to, to support, because otherwise it would just be ludicrous. Like, I can't imagine any other show that could pull that off without it just being, like, kind of a one-off laugh and then being boring. But you really learn to feel for this guy. And honestly, like, when, when, the, when the Monarch and Dr. Venture are together, you're always rooting for the Monarch, 100% <laughs> of the time. Yeah, well, I mean, the Dr. Venture is kind of unlikable he's he's a real jerk and he's arrogant and he's he's like there's the more i i watch the show and like rewatch older episodes the more clear it is that in a lot of ways he's as bad as his villains or worse yeah no that and that is like his character doesn't really grow out of that like sometimes he has some long dark night to the soul but he's always a, like an egocentric jerk even when we go into how it's it's been brought on that he like had such a traumatic childhood that this is the product of being raised as a boy adventurer by a super scientist who was you know maybe a great hero but a terrible father who did incredibly traumatizing things to this child yeah and, 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 they, and, and now he does it to his own kids yeah because that's how like that's how abuse works right, right? It, it's like the cycle of abuse gets passed <laughs> down wow we're really selling this show <laughs> yeah in those sense i guess like the comedy is a little dark but it's presented in a very light-hearted way um and the deep flux of the story i mean like look i'm getting into sort of wrap-up speak because we're already over time um but what this show does is it examines like some pretty serious character motivations and developments and issues but through this completely unique lens of this bizarre world of what does 60s adventure look like in the year 2020, or I guess 2018, I guess was when the <laughs> last season came out. And it's something that no, it's, it's like no other show. No other show has taken this approach with it, and it's made it, and it's let them do something so unique and so interesting. Um, so to wrap up the monarch, like he's great and he's funny, and like it's like his show now, and I love it. It's a blast. But also, we know that this is a weird episode for a lot of you listening because this is such an underground hit. I, like, it's I, could you call it a cult classic? I think it has to be. It's amazing that it still keeps going and that it still has a fan base, considering how long there are the how long the gaps are between seasons. But I think that just helps keep that fire alive. Like the people who are still watching love it all the more because they are part of something special, I guess. So we want yeah, you to be part of something special too. Yeah, we are inviting you to join this super special club. To join Team Venture. Uh you will not regret it. It is a blast. To be fair, maybe we're underestimating you. Maybe you're a huge fan of the show. 
Uh, are there other characters you can't believe we don't have on our list? I mean, I know we're already, like, our honorable mentions list is something like 20 characters long. But did you have someone you wanted to suggest? Or, heck, are you just going to try the show out and let us know how you like it? We would love to hear from you and hear more about from other folks who are, who are on the team. All kinds of ways you can get a hold of us. You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. And we are on Twitter at geektop5. Always look forward to hearing from our listeners. Um, it's You're the reason that we get to do this. Uh, it's always a blast. So thank you so much for tuning in. Tell your friends. I uh, would love to have more people on board. Special thanks to you. Uh, in addition, remiss of us not to mention, extra special thanks to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. That's R-E-A-U-M-E. Check him out. Check out his project, TriviaSchmivia.com, uh, Pub Nights Online. But you can also find him at Jamie Reum Official on YouTube and Jamie underscore Reum on Instagram. Big music geek. Um, some of those music references I was talking about that I had to look up, he would know them. Uh, pretty cool guy. In any case, that's all we have for today, but we will be back to talk to you again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again next week.